Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 401 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Adam, all by myself today. Uh, you just get this one voice until we get into the main part of this particular episode, which is an interview I did with author Catherine McGee. Uh, she wrote the ludicrously fun and popular American Royals book. Uh, it basically posits a world where America has a royal family, like our friends over in uh, England do. Uh, she also is the author of the Thousandth Floor series, so you may know her from the from that background but American Royals is a little bit different and um, it's something that she she mentions in the in the conversation that this was actually the idea she had first before she became a best-selling author of the Thousand Floor series and she was really excited to create this world of the American Royals uh, we had a whole lot of fun uh, she these books are very much like um, romantic comedies kind of a thing and there's uh, another one coming out uh, that she was working on as we were, we were chatting um, it, it's going to be a series but uh, it's a romantic comedy that you, you know, would think it might be like light and fluffy and it's a lot of fun, but she has done so much research and she is so steeped in the world of kind of the royal families and there's so much fun history in here. Um, it's, it's basically like it's being described as crazy rich Asians meets the crown, which is a pretty good description for this. Um, it's also really good if you were a fan of red, white and royal blue. Um, it's just really fun. It's it's a really, really fun book. But because of the different history that she's created, she has to look into various things of other revolutions around the world, um, adding stuff about the French Revolution and all, and all sorts of really fun stuff, which led us, naturally, me being a theater fan, uh, to talk about uh, Les Mis. And then we also bounced around and talked about his dark materials because <clears throat> as we were Recording this, the first episode or two had just come out, um, and so it's actually a pretty good time because we're just about at the end of the His Dark Materials uh, HBO first season. So that's that's in the near the end. We talk about the audiobooks and all sorts of fun stuff. We really bounce all around in this conversation, and I think you guys will really like it. Uh, so I'll get to that in just a second, but before we do that, I want to do a little bit of housekeeping here. First things first. In case you missed our 400th episode, go back and take a listen to that. It's an interview we did with our CEO and founder, uh, Steve Potash, the uh, CEO and founder of Overdrive, the company that Jill and I both work for. Uh, people really seem to be enjoying that, having a lot of fun kind of hearing the history of how our company came to be, at least the first part of our history. Uh, we're going to have him back for a little bit more of the conversation because we haven't told the whole story just yet, but people seem to be enjoying that. So that's episode 400 if you missed it. Also, uh, we will be releasing a number of really fun episodes over the next couple of weeks, so make sure you're subscribed and you're getting the, you know, the notifications in your podcast app that the new episodes are coming. Uh, we're going to be doing, on Thursday, the best audiobooks of 2019 with our friends from Audiophile Magazine. 
we are going to be doing Jill and I's best books of 2019 and best books of the decade because we are gluttons for punishment and wanted to put ourselves to the ringer of trying to figure out what our best books were, not just for this year, but also for the entire decade. And uh, it was a labor of love for sure. We're excited to share those with you. Uh, We're also going to be providing you guys, obviously, the best books coming out in January towards the end of the month. We have a few more interviews. Um, And then also, we are going to be releasing our 2020 Professional Book Nerds Reading Challenge. Uh, So we have 12 all-new challenges for you guys, uh, very similar to what we did last year. Uh, But this one, we're going to, of course, have all-new challenges for you guys to dive into. So we're going to be releasing that a week from today, if you're listening to this on Monday December 16th. Uh, If you were participating in your 2019 Professional Book Nerds Reading Challenge, be sure to send those to professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. We're accepting those through the end of this month, and then we'll pick a winner at the beginning of January, and we'll send you a reading device courtesy of Overdrive. Um, Yeah, so still time to get those in. If you need any last-minute suggestions on books, you can always email us as well there, or you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at ProBookNerds. Um, I think that's just about all of the housekeeping. Uh, Joe and I are going to be doing a lot of recording this week to make sure that during the holiday season, if you're traveling anywhere, uh, you've got episodes that you can enjoy and and get some book recommendations. Uh, Maybe if you're doing some last-minute purchasing of books for friends, uh, friends or family, maybe we'll be able to help you out with those as well. So, okay, I think that's just about all the housekeeping. I if I forgot something, you'll hear about it all on Thursday. So I will let you get to this conversation I had with the delightful Catherine McGee on the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. everybody, it's Adam again, and I am super excited to tell you that I am joined today by Catherine McGee, who's the New York Times bestselling author of the, Sa- the Thousand Floor series. She studied English and French literature at Princeton and has an MBA at Stanford, and the thing that we're going to kind of lead off with today is her latest book, which is getting buzz all over the place, and it's called American Royals. So first off, Catherine, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so, so excited to be here. And so we always like to start our uh, our conversations by having the author introduce their latest book because I never want to give away too much of the plot. So would you mind telling our listeners a little bit about American Royals? Of course. So American Royals is, I like to think of it as a mashup of Crazy Rich Asians and The Crown. It <laughs> takes place in an alternate version of the modern world, a sort of what if, instead of being our first president, George Washington had actually become our first king. And so modern day America is like England and has a royal family. And it follows all of the romances and adventures and pressures of the younger generation of royals to princesses and a prince as they are coming of age and preparing to eventually inherit a throne. And so so royalty is something you've kind of, you've always had an interest in, right? Like this is, this wasn't a new idea for you when you started writing it. I read a lot of historical fiction, and most of the historical fiction that I read ends up being, you know, royalty-based historical fiction in particular. I mean, I love the books of Philippa Gregory. I read anything by Susan Hawley Scott, Carlene Cohen, all of these authors who are, you know, taking different time periods and exploring often what it was like to be a woman in this time period and 
both a woman in a position of power and often ones who had no power and had to seek it elsewhere. And so I I always actually thought that I was going to write historical fiction. And my senior thesis in undergrad was a an examination of American historical fiction. And in particular, I had a whole chapter on our fixation with royalty and why why there are so many of these books that take place in historic royal courts particularly since, of course, we don't have royalty here. So I use a term that I like to call castle envy, which is basically <laughs> that we, you know, we, since we don't have any castles or palaces, we are even more excited about them than any Europeans or other people who do have them. So this, I've always, I've always been toying with this idea. I think there are so many fascinating things about royalty. Obviously, the glamour and all the ceremony and pomp and circumstance is just really fun to write about. But also, I have found that there's not a lot you can write about in contemporary literature that really creates a true a true conflict of fate or destiny. And that, for so long, I mean, think about all the books we read in high school. All of the plots often hinged on, you know, people can't be together because of fate or circumstance. And that's for good reason, that is just not a device you can use anymore because in the modern world, everyone gets to decide who they are and who they want to be, and we don't have that kind of distinction, except with royalty. That's the, that's the little <laughs> exception that I get to use. Royals are truly kind of the last people whose destiny is chosen for them, who are born, and they don't get to decide. They don't get to decide to be famous. They're not like other celebrities. They are just born famous, and they're born with this responsibility. So it's been really fun to get to use that as a device and kind of play with it because in that, in that sense, sometimes it almost feels like I'm writing a fantasy novel because, of course, that's, that's a tool you can use in fantasy as many times as you want, but it gets a lot harder when you're dealing with the modern world. I was just going to say, people will, you know, look at this book and the way that it's promoted and the and kind of the cover and everything they might just think like simple rom-com but that is absolutely not true i mean you you mentioned you know fantasy and and your first your first series was was fantasy as well and how how is the world building for this because there you had to make like a lot of very specific decisions in going into this story it's not just setting up a a premise and then kind of writing a uh almost like a teen movie sort of thing. Like you, There's a ton of stuff you had to put together in this, correct? Thank you so much for noticing all of that. <laughs> I really appreciate that. I feel, as a, as a history nerd, I really, uh, I got, I had a lot of fun getting to play with all of this, and I really enjoy when readers notice and call it out. <laughs> I, I had a lot of fun playing with all the different small details, everything from, you know, the idea that instead of the Louisiana Purchase, uh, the French king gambled it away, and, and so we won it in a game of cards. To um, you know, of course, the idea that we have aristocracy. These are all things that you know I got to play with in big and small ways. So it has been really fun to imagine what the alternate world would be like. In particular, of course, probably the biggest change is that if you take eighth grade history just as your starting point, everyone remembers or was taught that the American Revolution inspired most of the revolutions that came afterwards, including, you know, the French Revolution and the Spanish Revolution and even the Russian Revolution. And so, and so logically, my response is that, therefore, all of these countries are also still monarchies. And of course, they're, they're socially advanced. It's, you know, the 21st century. So they, they all operate in many cases like modern England in the sense that it's more like a constitutional monarchy 
and the people have democratic power. But I did in many ways to freeze the world in the <laughs> late 18th century and, and keep some of those structures. And so it, there have been times when I come into conflict with my editor. For instance, I, of course, you probably know Germany was not unified mm-hmm. at the time of the American Revolution. So I had all these different small German entities and counts, and she just rolled her eyes and said, can you please just give me, like, a German king? And I said, well, technically, of course, there would be a German king. <laughs> she goes, Katie, I just, there's, you, you got to give me the, like, you can't make me listen to all these small, it, these Saxony and Bavaria, and, just, and we're just going to have a German king. So there are times when, of course, I have to just yield to the demands of the page count, but um, <laughs> but it is really fun to get to to get to think of all these things. Now, here is a very important question: If there was no French Revolution, would there be a Les Misérables? That's that's the question I need to know. Oh, I love Les Mis. I mean, I want to say so because yes, because how could you exist? I don't want to think of a world where we're not singing one day more. Right. So we're just going to have to find another way for that to exist. Listen, I know right before we started recording, you told me that you're like scrambling to get done with uh, a third draft of the next book. But I, I don't know if it's too late, but like if you just were to slide in some lyrics from something from Les Mis, like I feel like like maybe like name someone just like a, a tertiary character, Valjean or something, just like a little just a, a little bit of a, like, yeah, it still exists. I feel like I could rest easier. That's good to know. I'm sure there's a place for that. Well, you may have noticed that I put fake Hamilton in the first book. Uh-huh. So they go to see a musical called Midnight Crown, but that's, to me, that was supposed to be Hamilton. <laughs> um, I have to say, like, as someone who studied you know, English and French literature, like, I am amazed that you are still fascinated by what is really a bulk of what you studied in college. Like, I just feel like all of the classic stuff that I read in college, as soon as I graduated, all I wanted to do was get as far away from it as possible. Like, that takes some real dedication to still be in that world. What Did you study classics or, or did you study English? So it was English, but I had, a like, a heavy, heavy specialty, and I did a lot of classics, but I did them all over different countries. So I did... Uh, French literature, I did Greek and Roman mythology, I did Brit Lit, which was tough because I don't like Shakespeare, and my professor could not get over that. Like, she was very upset at me, but by the time I got done reading all those, all I wanted was a book published in, like, 2010, just so I could read something more modern. I mean, it's all about balance. You definitely, I agree, you can't stay in the historical things for too long. It's, it's, it can be uh, a little bit too heavy to read so many tomes that are, you know, written in that that 18th century pondering style where the sentences just go on and on and on. But um, but they're, they're really fun. Occasionally when I'm really stuck, I like to go back and read things like that that just that sound different from my own voice and, like, different from any other modern voice. Um, Dickens is great for that. Mm-hmm. Sometimes Vanity Fair actually is an old classic I go back to time and again because, they, they, you know, they structured paragraphs differently and they structured sentences differently and and even stories you know that i love sometimes how those those old stories they have a a really clean structure and the chapters are all just so perfectly ordered and, I, and it is fun to escape into them sometimes because i feel like we and it's mostly a good thing but we've set a lot of the rules aside mm-hmm. and you know it's all kind of a free-for-all now but it's fun to go back and look at how things were 
written when there were a lot more rules of composition. I'm I'm glad you brought brought up Dickens. I actually I'm a, a huge Dickens fan. I, I read a Christmas Carol right around this time of year, like once a year. But um, is there a specific author like other than Dickens or something that you find yourself really drawn to and you want to kind of remember those uh, those days of yore when oh, we were sitting? Edith in... Wharton for sure. Edith Wharton, and the fun one is. I mean, everyone's read The Age of Innocence and The House of Mirth, but if you haven't, I always tell people to go read Custom of the Country. It's her underappreciated, I'm, I hesitate to say rom-com, but it almost is. It's it's written like Sex in the City 100 years earlier. It is about this young woman who's social climbing in you know the early 20th century New York, and it is just so it's so funny it's so you you don't realize when you read the other sad Edith Wharton's how delightfully funny she can be and she's hilarious so I always recommend that one to people I need to tell you because you mentioned Philippa Gregory earlier I was able to sit down with her for about an hour and did an interview with her and she is the only other person on this podcast who has mentioned Edith Wharton so you are closer to Philippa Gregory than you even realize that makes me so happy (laughs) Philippa Gregory is I've I'm very jealous you got to meet her. I, if I ever got to meet her, I would be an uncomfortable fangirl. I, you know those times when you meet someone, and I've been fortunate enough to do this in person with a lot of the authors we've met, but like, you know when you meet someone and you're just so sure that they are at a higher level of existence than you, but you have to play it cool while you're in front of them? That was me for like an hour trying to ask this British treasure a question over and over again. And I was like, oh, I bet... I bet she hated that question, and then she would answer it just, like, with perfect elegance, and she was wonderful, but the whole time I was like, I bet she thinks I'm just a terrible human by... No, (laughs) no, but she does exist. She doesn't exist in in really the modern world. I think her entire state of being is is about, you know, 400 years ago, so we can just cut her some slack. (laughs) Uh, So, of the various royal uh families and and lines and even like what what's the one that you enjoy the the modern recreation of the most because there's so many of these that are out there uh you know the crown and kind of everything like like what's your favorite one of those shows oh i i love the crown i think the crown is so well done it is every episode is just utterly beautiful i have a a shameful weakness also for the show Victoria, mm-hmm. which is a BBC show that um, I, at least I'm watching through Amazon Prime BBC app, and it is so fun. And it's um, Jenna Coleman plays Victoria, and she, in a very fun fact, she is a long-ago ex-girlfriend of Prince Harry. Girlfriend might be a strong word, but <laughs> they, they went on at least two or three documented dates so I find her really entertaining because she dated a real-life prince and then later went on to play a queen who's his ancestor. That is super interesting. The, the reason I ask is that um, as I was doing research for this, I think you and my wife might be like long-lost sisters because all of the things that she is passionate about, you seem to be as well. And uh, I don't watch The Crown with her, but I have had to watch the trailer for season, I think it's season three, like 10 times because she won't stop watching it. It's such a good trailer. Tell your wife. I completely agree. Yeah. You can exchange thoughts after we get to see it on Sunday. I will honestly, I'll connect you two and then I will just fade into the distance because I, I'm not great at watching television shows in general, but when I just period pieces, I don't, 
super care for. So she will watch the very all the various, you know, the tutors or even like down nabby, like anything. Oh, I love the tutors. I should have said that when it was just a little while ago, so I forgot about it. But yes, the tutors was great. And oh. Down Nabby, yeah, all of them, all of them. Julian Fellows is the creator of Down Nabby is just so good at doing a sort of a, a historical soap is what I like to think of it as, you know, mm-hmm. a historical story, but it moves and the story engine is driven as if it's almost an episode of a soap opera. You know, there's just one one plot point like pushing forward into the next constantly. It's so it's so genius. And he's, the, he's another one that I would love to meet. Yeah. <laughs> um, what about Versailles? I didn't mean to just fall down this uh, this rabbit hole of shows that my wife likes that I think you would like, but I, you know, we're here now. So um, she's also obsessed with Versailles, and it's mainly because of all of the outfits and everything. Is that one that you are on board with as well? So I'm sad. I probably need to go back and do a retry with Versailles. I tried to watch <laughs> it with my husband, which is always a, a questionable choice. Yeah, no, you and can't do that. That I needed to just do on my own. And I only made it through about three or four episodes. And it's I know a lot about that period because it's one of my favorites. And so I, I really, I felt like they did a good job with a lot of the history, but it actually moved very slow for me. So the costumes were beautiful and, and they did it. I thought the sets were i loved how they actually were very true to how it would feel it was kind of austere you know the rooms are so big and that's when you go to versailles you think about that and they're not they didn't live the way we live now with all this furniture everywhere it was just these open spaces and the rooms were, were open and you kind of moved i guess to accommodate all these people when they were standing trying to meet with the king but um it, they really did a good job showing that in the show because there's a lot of times when you're looking at it and it feels like it's just, you know, there, there's not that much on the screen except for just some walls. So I, I thought it was beautiful, but I didn't, I wasn't just gripped by it the same way that I was the others. So I kind of let that one fall off okay. badly. Okay. That's, that's okay. I am honestly, I'm way out of my league in it, talking about any of these shows anyway, because I have watched like seven minutes here and there. Like I'll be cooking something and I'll see it out in the background that she's watching it. So this is, I've, I feel like I've done as much as I could on this one, but um, getting back to your, your writing, I, something I wanted to ask you, you know, I mentioned the, you, you had your first series, The Thousandth Floor, and that was kind of like sci-fi and fantasy-ish, um, and then switching over to American Royals, and I know that we, you know, I mentioned you're in kind of your third draft of the, the second book now, so you're really deep in everything, but how did it feel after spending so much time in the science fiction world that you had built to start creating a new world when you went into American Royals? Was it something that you were excited about? Were you nervous? I guess just like take us through starting a new place. So I hate, I hate to say this because it's going to sound like I don't love the thousand floor, which I do, but writing American Royals felt like coming home. Mm -hmm. This is the type of thing that I should have always been writing. And I actually came up with this idea first. So this, I used to work in book publishing, which you may know. I was a book editor for four years in New York. And while I was working as an editor, I pretty quickly realized I had kind of always known that I wanted to write. And I had this American Royals idea, but it was a different incarnation back then. I think going back to TV, House of Cards had just come out, and I was heavily influenced by that. And so I had my original write-up for American Royals was much more in a thriller vein, and it was there were assassinations, 
and it was it was more male. It, it was darker and grittier, and I only really was able. To, I wrote a treatment for it in two or three chapters, and I talked with my former boss, who's now my agent, and he was happy to know that I wanted to write, but he really wasn't a fan of the American Royals concept, and he urged me to set it aside. And then I fell kind of into the thousandth floor because I really wanted to offer up a different vision of the world than all the dystopians that were so popular back then. Mm-hmm. And I, I love those stories, but they're just, they're so dark and they're so bleak. And I felt like there was something a bit troubling to me that we kept offering up these visions of broken worlds. And if people keep seeing these dark versions of the future over and over, eventually I feel like there's sort of a an inflection point where you start to think that's actually what the future is going to be like. Mm. And it, it like takes away a little bit of hope if you think, well, the future is going to be broken anyway, so what does it matter what I do? So I, really, I just wanted to give people a visual for a different kind of world where we actually got it right and worked together and every generation left the world a better place than they found it. And so that, that I was very adamant that I wanted to write sort of a hopeful, optimistic, Jetson-style future world that <laughs> did not have, you know, children being sent to the arena to die or any or robots killing us or anything like that. So it was it was a very fun world for me to explore, but it was it was outside of my comfort zone. And I, I do read a good bit of fantasy, but I don't read almost any science fiction. So I had to, I did a little bit of a sci-fi crash course. I started reading... Uh, you know, kind of the classics that I had never read. And I love Kim Stanley Robinson. If you've not read him, he mm. sort of exists in that same optimistic sci-fi place. And he's been, he's been really fun to follow. But, um, but coming back to the American Royals world and, and this, you know, the idea of courts and, um, you know, court ceremonies and young people who are going to inherit the throne and the pressures of, being born with this last name, that that all for me is like, that's the world I've lived in is, is, is what I read since I started reading. And so this, there was a lot less effort here. I feel like to, to do the sci-fi right, I was being very conscientious about it. And of course, I'm still very, I try to be, you know, conscientious and thoughtful about it, but it's just coming, it's like I'm writing in my native language and before I was trying to write in French. <laughs> so... <laughs> I could do it, and I learned how to do it, but, like, now I'm writing in English again, and it's it's, it's really nice. <laughs> I was just going to say, I imagine that writing these books probably feels a little bit more fun, like, a little bit less, like, work almost for you at this point. I mean, the sci-fi was still really fun, and if you read them, you probably, I mean, people often, bookstores get so confused about how to classify those books because <laughs> they are kind of science fiction-y, but I always call them sci-fi light because they, they're really, for people who are not sci-fi fans, they're still very approachable in the sense that, like I said, there's no, you know, you're not reading Andy Weir. There's not, uh, <laughs> well, no one's like dying on Mars. It's all, it's all very, it takes place on Earth. It's human stories and they're really romantic stories. So people sometimes want to call it a romance. People sometimes want to call it a mystery because they're the overarching mystery. People often call it a fantasy, which makes me laugh, even though there's no magic in it. Right. And so, uh, you know, it, it kind of it kind of exists in all these different places. But it is, I try to make it feel, I think people think that sci-fi is going to feel, you know, heavy or action-packed, like a Star Wars 
thing and it's this was it didn't have any of those feelings it felt like a contemporary novel or at times like a fantasy because I really did try when I used the technology I really did try to make it feel almost the way that um, J.K. Rowling uses magic so Mm -hmm. you know I wanted it to feel whimsical and and to make you smile when you read about it. I have a very very important question if you were going to take a specific family in modern day America to be like our royal family, what, who would be the family that you would pick out of people that are, you know, like currently alive and around? Uh, this question always makes me laugh because sometimes when I pitch the book, people go, Oh, American Royals, that's like the Kardashians, right? No. And I just sort of wince a little bit. I I definitely would not pick the Kardashians. I mean, so I, I don't, I mean, my, like, go-to would probably just be Beyonce should mm-hmm. be our queen. Like, I think most of us could get on board with Beyonce representing us. Yeah. And also, she's from Houston, and I'm, you know, it's just, she's my hometown girl, so I want to I wanna support her. I can, you know what, I can get behind Beyonce being the answer to this. I, I, I sort of thought that's where you were going to go, if I'm being honest. Like, that's... Where are you going to say? I mean, the Obamas are like Michelle Obama is also obviously would be a great one. Yeah, I don't know that I would. I even have an answer that I would be able to pull off off top. My, I was expecting you to answer a question that I don't know that I could. Um, yeah, it's tough, but I think I think Beyonce is probably right. The only part of that that I don't love is like Jay Z's fine, you can take her or leave him, but it, you know, like he would by default also be a part of this royal family. So that would be the only. I agree with you, but that's why Beyonce has to be the queen, and he has to be the king consort, or, you know, mm-hmm. that's what I'm calling it, or the, in England, of course, the prince consort, that that's just sort of their first ceremony, but with, with maybe not so much decision-making power. Yeah, okay, I think... I think we've come to the right answer pretty quickly. I, I, no one else is, like, jumping out at me, which is okay. Um... Speaking of alternate universes, something that we that you and I share a love for is His Dark Materials. And I saw that you were reading Book of Dust recently. So first off, have you gotten through Book of Dust yet? Oh, yes. I finished Book of Dust, but I have not started The Secret Commonwealth. I'm saving that for over the holidays, and I'm so excited. It is a big, meaty book. It's like 700 pages. It's, uh, <laughs> there's a lot going on. It's... It's good. I don't want to give anything away. I, think I know. I'm a little scared to read it because I know Lyra's grown up. And so when I was younger, I can't find it now, which is so sad. I, I found some other old journals of mine, but I can't find this one. But I think the first creative writing I ever did was fanfic of the end of His Dark Materials because <laughs> I was so outraged with the ending. I uh-huh. just didn't accept it. So I wrote, I wrote a scene that was Lyra and Will meeting like 10 years later when they were both in their mid twenties mm-hmm. and I can't remember how I made it happen, but probably I just did like a very deus ex machina, you know, we've made so much dust that we can open another window. And so I, it's so funny cause that's obviously not real or part of the canon, but I like in my deepest of hearts, I feel like it is <laughs> like, even if it's my fan fiction, I just feel like that's how the series ends because they have to get back together because they just can't not be together. <laughs> and so I'm really, really scared to read, to read adult Lyra being without Will. I, I don't know how I'm going to be able to take it. Yeah. I'm dancing around it cause I've read it and I, and I have my own thoughts and I don't want to give anything away for you, 
Um, so I will just say, I think you said before we started recording, you've seen the first episode of the HBO series, correct? I have. And mm-hmm. actually, I'm on audiobook right now. I'm also re-listening to, I've listened to the whole, I've read the book, I've listened to the audio several times, and I'm back in the audio again. I don't know if you've heard that audiobook, but it's my favorite audiobook it, of is, all time. Is it the one with the cast? Yes, oh. the cast is so good. And Philip Pullman narrates it. He's, if, of all the people we've mentioned today, he's the one I want to meet the most. I just want to like go drink wine with him in front of a fireplace and have him talk to me in that voice. He has a natural storyteller voice. He has the type of voice that if he was an ancient Greek, he would have been a bard. He would have been a professional talker. He's just so yeah. good. His voice reminds me of like Anthony Hopkins a little bit. Like it has that like um, otherworldly like stateliness to it. That just exactly what you said. Like it, him and like Neil Gaiman. That I it just makes me wanna like sit next to a fire and have him tell me stories. It's so good. I have told everyone in the world. I'm like, listen, get get the physical books if you're that's the type of what you want to read. But the audiobooks of that are incredible. Wait, does Neil Gaiman narrate his own audiobooks? I've never listened yes. to Neil Gaiman. <gasps> yeah. Oh, you just changed every. You just picked my next few audiobooks for me. So thank you. Oh yeah, no, it is. It is so like, I. It's almost like um, his voice has a like a viscosity to it. It's almost like there's like a thickness that you just want to wear like a blanket. Um, oh, they're so. I'm glad I was able to help because this this makes me very happy. So, what did you think of the first show so far? liked it so far i i mean i it's i worried it's not going to measure up to the book but i just don't think it can mm-hmm. and, but i think that i think that if anybody's going to do it it's going to be hbo and i will say i loved what they did with game of thrones up through pretty much the last <laughs> season or two mm-hmm. you know they which really isn't that when um when George R. R. Martin stopped writing some of the episodes, so that's probably why. Yeah, but they, I I thought they did a great job with it. You know, they so hopefully hopefully it's that same kind of attention to detail. I think it should be, and um, and I you know it's hard to know after just the one episode, but I did like I did like most of it. Yeah, well, and they also have they have the BBC backing as well. And the most important thing I think honestly is that Philip Pullman has the the series that they're telling is complete. Like they have all the source material, so like they they don't have to. Turn side. I was pretty annoying though while we were watching the first two episodes. Anytime they would like anything would change from the source material, I would look at my wife and be like, "That's not the way that it is." And she's like, "Please, please stop doing that." I know. The one thing I would, I will say, which I don't, I only mean it facetiously, but I do kind of wish Matthew McConaughey had been cast as Lee Scoresby. That's such like, a I better one. I, Right? I just want Matthew McConaughey being like, all right, all right, all right. Well, and I think that's because you and I have both listened to the audiobook so many times. Like, that's the voice I hear. Because, like, don't get me wrong, Lin-Manuel is a... Oh, I love Lin-Manuel. He's a gift. Another genius, yes. But he's not what I think of when I think of Lee Scoresby, which, that's that's okay. I think we're we're both right on that. Um, Oh, what would your demon be? It's so funny. I have had this talk frequently with various <laughs> people in my life, and I don't, I don't know. I mean, when I was little, I used to. You're gonna laugh. I used to think it would be a horse because <laughs> I never saw them in the books, and I thought that would be the coolest thing. Uh-huh. Like, like, what better way to make an entrance than to ride into every party on your horse, demon? <laughs> That's just great. Um, 
I, but I think there's a reason that we never see demons that are any bigger than, I mean, guess the snow leopard. Like, mm-hmm. you never see any really huge, you never see an <laughs> elephant or a, you know. <laughs> like, there's something to be said for convenience of size. Mm-hmm. So I do feel like my horse has quite a few drawbacks, including, like, going upstairs in small houses. <laughs> I'm not really sure. Yeah, I, I, I honestly have never really thought about that until right now. You're absolutely right. Like, the biggest thing you see are dogs or... Like Mrs. Coulter's monkey, um, the snow leopard, like the any the, anything bigger than that, it probably would have been pretty tough for storytelling purposes. Yeah, I asked my husband this question and he laughed and he said I would be a lizard because I like to sit on the beach. Like my <laughs> my truly happy place is sitting on the beach reading a book, and he's like, "That's you. You're just a lizard baking in the sun forever." And I can't tell whether that's an insult or not Uh, i think it's okay i think it's okay lizards can be cute i suppose i mean it's you know i i have a uh, what do you think yours is oh i can answer this without any question so our my wife and i have two dogs and the oldest dog of the two is nine years old and he was the first dog i ever got i grew up with a cat and always wanted dogs but our older dog, he's a Weimariner, and his name is Holden. Um, listeners to the podcast know all about my dogs. I post them all over the place. But Holden is, like, he's the gentlest soul, and he's been a grumpy old man since he was, like, one. And it just encapsulates, like, every bit of my personality that I don't normally show on the podcast. Just, like, a grumpy, like, quiet, stodgy old person ever since I've been a kid. So, yeah, Holden, my Weimariner, is my demon for sure. I love that. Yeah. He's my, he's my guy, 100%. <laughs> That's so great. Yeah. Um, okay, so towards the end of our episodes, we like to ask nine uh, lighthearted questions that we call the Nerd Nine because I like alliteration. Um, the first one is, do you know the last book you finished reading? Oh, um, I mean, I can't even remember what order they're in, but I, cause I read like several books at once. So I, I just finished, um, like a royal history book called Behind the Throne, which was a, um, it's like a examining, it was, it was not as dry as it sounds, it's examining of the, the structuring of the British royal household, starting with Elizabeth I, and like how how the ladies-in-waiting play in, and, and how the steward manages his staff. It's sort of a little bit like Downton Abbey without the drama, you know, kind of going into all that detail. And then um, I finished listening to Educated, finally, which I know I'm behind everybody else in the world, but I finally listened to that on audiobook, which was amazing. And now, so as you know, now I started my re-listen of His Dark Materials. Um, You reading a book about like the background of American ro- of, or of, of royalty is extremely on brand. So good, good job by you. I try to keep reading some royal books just throughout because I feel like they keep me. I, I find I find little details in the books that make it in that I wouldn't have thought of on my own. Then they're small, but I think they add a lot. For instance, um, in the first book, there is a moment when Beatrice is remembering the first time that she went on TV and how the the, the, they had like a teleprompter for her dad and mm-hmm. then they had a TV next to it playing cartoons mm-hmm. and that's real from a Prince Charles biography that I read which I would never have known that when the queen did her first address with young Prince Charles on her knee they were playing cartoons 
for him. So he was, it looked like he was looking at the camera because the cartoon screen was right there. Mm-hmm. And he was kind of laughing and clapping his hands and stuff. And that's all because he was watching cartoons. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I would never have thought of this. Like, I never really thought of the logistics of putting a child on camera. But there you go. That uh, That is incredible. I love that. Um, uh, do you have a favorite place to read? I mean, on the beach, <laughs> but when, like, when I'm not on a beach vacation, I, I love reading at home on my downstairs couch. It's very cozy. Do you remember the book that kind of made you fall in love with reading when you were a kid? His dark, we're back to his dark yeah. materials again. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think I actually just in the nature of our conversation, I think I know the re- some of the answers of these. Um, what is one place you would like to travel that you have not yet been to? I am dying to go to St. Petersburg. That is super high on my list right now. I've gotten really into the Romanovs, and I would love to go see the Winter Palace. And I've never been to Russia at all, so I'm hoping that I can go sometime soon. I think that'd be really fun. Uh, at a later date, you and I are going to do another episode where we talk all about Russian literature because that of all of the uh, of all of the countries and their classic literature, Russian is my favorite. So we'll we'll circle back at a later date for that one. Oh yeah, have you been reading the Catherine Arden trilogy? They're so good. So I haven't just because I haven't had time to yet, but they it's on my list as well. Yes, that's great <laughs> Russian, great Russian lit. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have a favorite holiday to celebrate? Oh, I love Christmas. It's so, it's just my favorite, and it has all the wonderful traditions, and we still do, you know, leave out cookies, and I love decorating my tree, so mm. I actually haven't, I haven't done that yet, because I'm, I usually try to leave it till after Thanksgiving, but I may actually do it next weekend, so... That's the fun time of year right now. Yeah, oh, we're doing that. T- we, um, my wife and I are going on a uh, trip. We're going to Las Vegas this weekend, and then as soon as we come back, we are also decorating. So I think that's that's the time. It's a late Thanksgiving this year, so I think it's okay to do it beforehand. Exactly. Yeah. Are you a coffee person or a tea person? Coffee, coffee, coffee. <laughs> Cats or dogs? So we actually a dog, but we don't have any pets, which is so funny. We both, um, my husband and I both grew up in homes that didn't have pets. And so we, we're the non-pet people. And we love, I love playing with other people's dogs and like, and taking them on walks and stuff. But I just, I've never had one of my own. And so we, we, yeah, we don't have any. Okay. All right. Uh, favorite food? anything sweet i love (laughs) cookies and candy and all of that currently i'm working through like a big box of chocolate chip cookies so (laughs) that's how my deadlines go (laughs) um and then i'm like pretty sure i know the answer to this because we talked a long time but if you could have dinner with one person alive or dead who would you pick oh i mean i listed so many in this episode but i mean i really like i said i really want to meet philip pullman i have frequently joked that I would go just show up at his house in Oxford and just ring the doorbell and I feel like he would be okay with it I feel like he'd let me in and we would have some tea and hang out but um but you know they're they're alive or dead I actually might also include um my grandfather my mom's dad who passed away five years ago he is the person who taught me to read actually so you know, I mean my parents probably deserve some credit but he <laughs> He really was the driving force. He was retired, and he just had infinite patience, and he spent hours with me 
teaching me. So I was one of those kids who showed up at school and kind of already knew when they start teaching it in kindergarten <laughs> or however old. And so, um, yeah, it's it would be nice to, to have another chat with him as well. Absolutely. Um, okay, last question for you. What do you hope readers take away from reading American Royals? So my first goal is always just to make people happy, which is such a, a simple, simple goal. But I feel like there's so much going on in the world right now that is depressing and dark. And there's just a lot of ugliness and hate. And I really would like for people to just, I'd like to inject a little bit of joy into people's lives and hopefully inspire them to carry that joy outwards and share it with more people on on a more sophisticated level. Of course, you know, I love for people to be thinking about just, you know, about, about their place in the world and, um, and about these kind of these fun questions of like, how do you grow up into a person and still honor the child that you were and the parents who raised you and, and the things that they wanted for you while also recognizing that sometimes the things that your parents want for you are maybe not the things that you actually need or want for yourself and how do you navigate you know that that fine line and, and sort of transition into being your own person I think the, these are the questions that really all coming of age folks deal with and they just become heightened when you're of course dealing with the future of a country instead of just the future of your own life so those are fun things to think about but as I said I mean I, I just I would love I always want people I never want people to leave my books and be unhappy that they read them. Now, obviously, I leave you on a. I, I do make you feel sad sometimes within the pages of the book, but um, hopefully, only so sad that you will stick with me and come on to the sequel and and see how everything plays out. Catherine, that's absolutely perfect. This was a blast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a fun chat. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Rakuten Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.